0: Welcome back to the living world. I hope you're all doing well. And if you hear any background noise, that's actually my uh, dryer. I'm doing laundry today, so that's fun. And uh, for this week, it's now on to episode 11. Woohoo! And it's the last day of February, which is nuts. I I think it's crazy that tomorrow is going to be the first day of March. I feel like I'm still here and it's January, but of course it isn't. Uh, For this week, the school I chose to do is uh, Ludwig Maximilian's uh, University in Munich. It's also abbreviated as LMU Munich, if uh, you guys didn't know. I didn't know that, definitely. Uh, This is a university in Germany, which i've never been to but again if any of you have ever been there or even to munich i'd love to hear about either of them because i'd love to visit at some point i did go to germany but we were only there for like a day and we went to see uh the new schwanstein castle so that's a whole different uh area it was really pretty by the way if you haven't been gorgeous castle gorgeous castle Anyways, I'm really excited about this episode because I got some really cool topics to talk about this week. I think they're awesome. Uh, My first uh, article I'm going to talk about, uh, because clearly this week I don't have any interviews, but I'm hoping to get some more soon. Anyways, the first topic I'm going to cover for this week is about sponges and Funnily enough, I just learned about sponges this week in my biology class, and they're pretty cool little buddies. And this specific article that I am going to later discuss is about using sponges as biomonitors for micropollutants, which is really cool. And I'm just going to go into a bit of information now about sponges, because they're pretty new to me, and I'm sure they're pretty new to all of you guys. There are about 5,000 different species of sponges, and about 150 of these species are freshwater sponges. And sponges are actually animals, so they're not they're not plants. Which for some reason I thought they were plants, but they're animals. Uh, and What's different about them compared to normal animals is they're referred to as basal animals. And this means sponges are a type of animal that lack tissues. Now, I just learned about this in my biology class. And that uh, quote I just said is from my biology class. And uh, while sponges don't have their own formal tissues, so this can include like, muscles or skin. They don't have any of that. What's interesting about sponges is if you break them apart into their own individual cell, if you send one sponge cell and put it onto, like, a rock so it grows, this one cell can grow to eventually become its own individual sponge. And that's the cool part that I found about sponges. That That's pretty cool. I didn't know that... You have one cell, and that can grow to be a whole new organism. And as I said already, sponges don't have uh, tissues, but their cells are specialized. So they don't—they're not just made up of one type of cell. Like a sponge is a sponge cell. They have different types of cells, which makes them an animal. And they belong to the. Uh, biological phylum called por- uh, porifera which means pore bearing in latin because all taxonomy divisions in biology are basically latin <laughs> there's a few that are based off of uh, researchers but those are more species names anyways most sponges are sedentary or actually never mind all sponges are sedentary. And I mentioned there's a few freshwater species, but the majority of them are marine. And sponges are filter feeders. So how they get their food and energy is they pass food through their bodies. They pass water through their bodies, and this water contains food particles. And uh, just a little tiny, tiny intro about sponge anatomy. You've got the sponges seal, which is the sponge body cavity, and uh, the food contained in the water that the sponge draws in exits through a part of the sponge called the ocellum. And if you're curious, you can look at a diagram of this because it makes a bit more sense. And I mentioned that sponges have specialized cells and... One really important type of specialized cell that the sponges have are called uh, coanocytes, choan- And these cells are really important because they have flagella. And for those of you who don't know who f- what flagella are, they are on the ends of, you know, like a bacteria. And the, the flagellum allows the bacteria to move. But in this case, flagella are used by sponges to rotate in a circular direction. And this rotation drives an influx of water into the cell. So sponges will take water on the outside of them, pull it into their body uh, cavity sponge seal with these uh, flagella. And this is how they filter food from the water. And each individual sponge cell actually intakes and digests any food that it gets from the water. So this is how they're able to live if they're only one cell and develop into a whole other organism. Now, sponges can look pretty weird. Um, They don't really look like Spongebob Squarepants. For those of you who have watched that TV show, sponges don't look like that. They don't talk. They don't have eyes. They don't have legs or arms or appendages. Uh, They can be classified, I guess, with their appearance as being either a non-symmetrical sponge or a radial symmetric sponge. So radial symmetry. Symmetry. Sorry, I can't speak today. Radial symmetry is like an example of this pizza. So you take a pizza, right, and you put all the pepperonis around in a circle, and they're all even on every single side. And no matter what direction you cut the pizza, it looks the same on each side. So sponges can either look like this, have this radial symmetry, or they are non-symmetrical, meaning no matter which way you cut them, they're not symmetrical. And sponge uh, reproduction, though I don't know a lot about it, I read a bit about it. Pretty pretty interesting. Uh, they reproduce either uh, sexually or asexually. And for asexual production, uh, sponges will form either external buds, which are on the outside of the sponge, or internal buds. Now, external buds work pretty generally. They have... Um, egg or sperm cells in them and then when the sponge wants to reproduce the buds break open i guess and you get baby larval sponges or whatever but internal buds are interesting i didn't know this they are actually used um if there's a really harsh climate the sponge is growing in these internal buds can survive this climate and later grow and develop into sponges now uh, sexual uh, production for or, sorry sexual reproduction for sponges occurs when you have, in certain types of sponges, a uh, game- gametocyte cell, which is like a, game- a gamete, I can't speak today, a gamete. Um, and these gametocyte cells make the egg and sperm cells that later um, are ejected into the water during spawning. And they later form uh, cells. And this is how sponges can actually colonize different areas. Because of this ejection of their uh, gametes into the water, they can spread on water currents to colonize different areas. And I briefly want to cover freshwater sponges, also because they're really interesting, and I didn't know they were freshwater sponges. These specific sponges um, are adapted to live in places with wet and dry periods. And when there's a dry period, I didn't know this also, but these fresh these freshwater sponges can go into a kind of a hibernation state. And um, this is when the sponges form. A, a bud of new sponges that is drought resistant and this bud is called a, a gemmule g-e-m-m-u-l-e and this uh, gemmule is pretty interesting it's pretty cool it, it can deal with being in a dry environment for long periods of time but when this gemmule is submerged in water again it can resume growth And this specific life stage of these freshwater sponges, or any other sponges really, or plants or organisms that undergo this kind of hibernation state during a dry period, this is called uh, cryptobiosis, and this means hidden life. Again, in Latin, because everything in biology is pretty heavily related to Latin, and Overall, sponges, like both sponges, both the freshwater and the marine sponges, they can also be involved in symbiotic relationships. Now, the sponges themselves don't normally benefit, but when they're used by other organisms in the relationship, they're not damaged either, which is good. And there can be either animals that live within the sponges and use their water influx cycle as a source of food. Or there are uh, animals that use the sponges for camouflage. So these can include different types of shrimp, or the animals that use sponges for camouflage called sponge crabs. Now I saw a picture of these crabs while I was doing research on this, and and they're they're really cute. They're just they were sitting on this on these rocks in the ocean, and they had sponges on their backs. So I guess. They appear more like a sponge, and then that's their predatory method. But I thought it was pretty cool. If you guys are curious about any of those kinds of sponge-animal relationships, I'm sure there is plenty of uh, literature out there for you to read. Now, I want to get into the study, which I mentioned was using sponges as uh, biomonitors for micropollution, which is a really cool topic. And this study was published... Uh, Not super long ago, uh, but back in 2020 on October 23rd. So not too long ago, just a few months. I still feel like it's January, but it's almost March, which is nuts. And this study involved researchers from LMU Munich and a uh, university in Indonesia called uh, Sam Ratulangi University. And... uh, What makes it really important is that, firstly, um, you could have microparticles in the ocean. And these generally, I think, come from, like, plastics and things. If you get plastic in the ocean and it breaks down. But uh, what makes a pollutant a microparticle is when it is a size of 5 millimeters or less. And these micro uh, particles, basically micro pollutants, they pose a threat to marine animals living in the ocean. And later down on the food chain, they do eventually pose health threats to humans. And how they pose a threat to humans and also to marine animals is these micro particles can enter our digestive systems and later lead to issues in that area. And these researchers showed, by looking at sponges, um, specifically ones that lived in marine areas, because that's where most micropollution is, is in the ocean, these uh, researchers found that sponges actually have a potential to act as a biomonitor for these different pollutants. And what makes them so... uh, Beneficial in this area of being a potential biomonitor is how sponges grow. So these researchers look specifically at a group of sponges called the mineralized sponges. And these are sponges that make their skeletons out of different minerals. So these can include using calcium or other common types of minerals that are found in the ocean. And... Specifically, these researchers went to Indonesia and they found some sponges living in Indonesia there. And Indonesia is also known to be a place with higher levels of micropollutant rates. So, hence why they went to Indonesia to find different sponges. And it's also a tropical area, so that makes sense where you'd have more sponges growing there. And Uh, What these researchers did is they took uh, some of the sponges and they used them to help determine uh, the pollutant levels. And uh, this was really, really good and important because there needs to be more work done in this general area about developing new laws based on pollutants. And determining pollutant levels is helpful because you can use this information to... Uh, develop new legislation to protect uh, various marine animals and also corals. Now these researchers looked at these mineralized sponges and they found that these sponges can actually incorporate various micropollutants into their skeletons. And how these sponges do this specifically is they... In their feeding process of filtering food particles out of the water, these sponges also filter out the different uh, compounds that they use to build their skeletons. And within the filtering of food particles and skeleton-building compounds, these specific sponges also filtered out micropollutants, which is awesome because... The researchers figured this out, and uh, sponges can weigh hundreds of grams, because they can get pretty big, because I'm sure you've seen plenty of pictures of sponges, and they're massive. What these researchers found, after they figured out these specific uh, mineralized sponges can filter out these micropollutants, is they found that um, for various sponges of different sizes, they found... Contains within their skeleton uh, masses ranging between 90 to 600 grams of different micropollutants. And these were all in their specific samples that they used in their study. And this is really cool and kind of creepy because it's all like plastics and stuff being stored in sponges, but it's also really cool and promising because there's not a lot of other marine species are being used today that act as this type of biomonitor because if you use another type of marine species that's not uh, equipped to handle this kind of sequestration of different pollutants, namely plastic pollutants, this can affect their health. So this is why it's really cool that this data was found that sponges can actually be like used to track levels of pollutants in the ocean. That's awesome. And uh, what I was reading also is that uh, scientists can uh, they can do biopsies on sponges, so they can take samples from the sponges without actually uh, killing sponges. Because of course, in the study, they use Full sponges for this, but it's really promising because if you want to say track the level of microplastics in the um Indian Ocean or in Indonesia or other tropical areas, you find a bunch of sponges. You take biopsies of these sponges and you see how much uh, of the different microplutins are contained in their skeletons which is super cool. Uh, I, I, I hope that in the future, maybe we can find some more marine species or even animals that live in rivers that can do this similar thing because that'd be great if we could have a way to track worldwide all these different pollutants to see where they most accumulate and how they travel around the world. It's a great start. And... Pretty promising for some future work with this kind of area. For those of you who maybe are doing marine biology or chemistry or areas like that, this could be a field you get into maybe one day. I mean, I, sh- I sure would like to get involved. It's pretty cool. Pretty cool. Uh, my next article I'm going to discuss is a bit different from sponges. Uh, it's about... Uh, how cells move, and researchers at LMU Munich uh, developed this mathematical formula to help better predict how they move. And before I go into their study, because you're all probably like, what cells move? How do they move? I I feel like I should cover that stuff before I go into talking about an article. Because I definitely... Had a vague idea, like I knew cells move, but I didn't know how. And the funny thing is, is I saw this this topic while I was doing my research, and I thought, wait, I've done some stuff on this kind of topic before, and I have. For my BL one one o one class, because I'm a freshman, we had to write a um, for half our grade, we had to write a fifteen hundred word paper. And they gave us about, I think, 15 or 20 different prompts that we got to choose from. And the prompt I ended up choosing was actually about how cells moved. So I spent um, the, the, the month, month and a half that I had with this to work on it, I spent that time reading about how cells move. So it's pretty cool. And so cells, they have, a, they have various different reasons for why they move. But some of the main ones include uh, when you're developing in uh, the womb or the uterus. When uh, you're an embryo and you develop, your cells have to move to go to different parts uh, to later make up your body. And this overall is termed embryonic development, so cells can move during this stage of life and for this reason. Uh, There's also immune cells, which I know you guys all know of. They move in the body, and this is when they're either, you know, like, they're attacking a pathogen, and you've got the macrophage that eats the pathogens, and kills them. And you've got immune cells that, along with attacking different pathogens, they move around your body to help heal wounds. So say you get, like, a splinter in your hand, and you have a bunch of blood, you've got your immune cells that come in to kill the pathogens and come from different parts of your body to help heal the wound. And cells also move uh, while they are growing and repairing damage. And I already mentioned that I wrote a whole paper on this. I'm not going to go into it because it is, like, just under 1,500 words. And unless you want to read about my uh, my fun paper with, like, 15 sources about cell movement, I mean, go ahead, but I don't have time to talk about that on here. Uh, but... Generally, uh, cell movement can also be called cell motility or cell crawling. And I know there's a bunch of different terms for this. And basically what cell movement is, is you have a cell. And the cell has uh, these adhesion uh, points or adhe- adhese- ad- adhesors on it. And it uses these to latch on to its surroundings, and its surrounding surfaces. And the cell will hook down these adhesions onto the surface. And it will stretch out, it will stretch itself out. And what, it'll stretch itself off to a certain point that it eventually needs to lift up its back end. And this is how the cell moves. It moves based off of friction. It gets traction by holding on to different surfaces in the body. These include either different bodily tissues um, or something called the extracellular matrix, which is these different uh, components and substances that various cells secrete in the body to basically communicate with each other. You can you can look that up later. And cells will move off of this or different tissues. And I mentioned that cells move based off of friction. And this is an ongoing process uh, that requires uh, continuing extension and retraction of the cellular membrane. And... The cell needs to keep doing this so it kind of forms a rolling shape. So you've got the cell that moves and extends and retracts, and it uses friction, and it rolls and rolls and rolls wherever it needs to go. There are plenty of videos on this. It makes a a lot more sense than how I'm explaining it. But it's really cool. And the cell needs to keep doing this rolling motion if it wants to keep moving. If a cell uh, doesn't Move anymore, it'll flatten out and stay still. And again, this momentum and friction force is vital to cell movement. But you all must be wondering how does a cell decide it's going to move? What makes a cell move? Like, what causes it physically to move? And I should have mentioned this a little earlier, but what determines if a cell moves. This is mainly, um, so you're a cell, right? You're sitting in the body and you're just hanging out. If you receive various signals, these signals will, uh, get received into the cell. And these are what determines if the cell moves or not. So signals can either be received from the host itself, meaning, uh, you have, In your body, your brain, or other things, send signals to the cell. This is one way. Cells can also be signaled to move from different things in their environments. And uh, the main other ways include various chemical signals that a cell may receive. These chemical signals are called chemoattractants. Cells can also be signaled to move via physical and electrical signals. And again, this whole process is really complicated, and I've just been trying to kind of generally cover it, but the basics of what you need to know are cells move um, after they receive various signals, and they move based off of friction. And again, if you guys are curious, you can watch plenty of videos on this and do some reading. And if again, if if you you're like, oh, you wrote a paper on this, Julia. Can I read your paper? Uh, sure. I mean, I have to check and see if that's all right. But I guess I could send a copy of my paper if you want to read it. If you if you want. <laughs> now I mentioned that the study that I'm going to talk about also uh, was um, about a new mathematical model equation to show how cells move and that's exactly what it's about it's really cool this study was published like a little over a month ago so published back on the 18th of january of this year which really isn't that long ago and um involved in this study were various scientists from um lmu munich uh, humboldt university in berlin and the Max Delbruck Center for Molecular Medicine, which is also located in Berlin. Again, I've never been to Berlin or Munich, so if you guys have been there, tell me about both those places. They sound awesome. And uh, so I mentioned already that this study uh, was about a mathematical model slash equation that was developed. And these researchers, how this model came about, was that these researchers wanted to develop something and they wanted to look more at the specifics that determine cell velocity. And cell velocity is a bit different from cell movement. Uh, Cell velocity is how fast a cell moves across a surface. Pretty self-explanatory because velocity is how fast something moves. And in this specific study, these researchers used cancer cells because... As we know, cancer cells move around the body, they grow, they develop, and they move around the body when they metastasize, meaning spread to different parts of the body. And in this study, these researchers looked at about 15,000 individual cancer cells, and they wanted to see uh, how different surfaces affect their movement velocity. And how these researchers did this is that they used these small, narrow lanes coated with various uh, sticky surfaces. And by doing this, these researchers tried to mimic different body surfaces to see how these cancer cells responded to them, to see if they would go faster or slower or a mixture of both. And... I mentioned they worked on developing a mathematical equation, and they did. This equation that they worked on was developed to try and encapsulate all of the different factors that impact cell movement. So, not they didn't focus on just one thing. They tried to make a, a general equation. Uh, they tried to so they they tried to create a general equation uh, about cell movement. And what these researchers found is that uh, various uh, cell movement, speeds, velocities, they depend on the type of friction that the cell goes against. And an example of this is these, uh, these scientists, they looked at what happened when they put a cancer cell into a specific area in their experiment, where it contained two places of different stickiness levels to see, oh, how does this cell move in this kind of environment, this kind of example. And they actually got some pretty good progress. You know, I originally thought before reading this paper, oh, they're not going to have anything. They're going to have like one equation. that's not going to align to anything at all. But what I found was they did get a pretty good equation and these scientists found that their mathematical model um, did match up pretty well to uh, their data and that's great. I mean great to see and to 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 hear that a mathematical model developed by these researchers worked and what what was mentioned in the in the article about this paper that I read actually was they compared their model to data that was found. Uh, that had been found for over the span of like 30 years right and i thought oh their the model doesn't match up but what the article said was yeah their their model did match up to this data and it matched up to this oh to this set of data that ranges from present to 30 years in the past and their model matched up with the movement um patterns of different cell types so different cells from the ones they looked at in their study and that's great that's that's great I mean knowing all this is awesome because it could in the future be used to help understand uh, cancer uh, metastas metastasizing and how cancer spreads in the body or other conditions it, it can't just this 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 model though right now it's just specific to cancer cells I'm sure these scientists are working on modeling normal cell movement, like our immune cells or uh, s- cells for embryos. So it's great. I mean, I saw this paper and I was like, "Whoa, that's so cool!" That they that they got that good of progress. It's awesome. It's it's, it's great. Uh, I'm now going to move on to my last article for this episode. I think it's it's really cool. I mean, it doesn't beat the sponge article. I think that one's the best this week, but this one's a, this one's a pretty close second. And this, this article is really interesting because, um, again, you've got these researchers and they looked specifically at using tonsil cells as a base for testing and, uh, studying the immune response and different, uh, drugs for Unimmune cells and I specifically just really quickly want to talk about tonsils. If you guys don't know what they are because tonsils are a really important part of the body Really important And I didn't know this but tonsils are actually a part of the immune system uh, They are a part of the specifically the lymphatic system, which I think I might have briefly covered last week Uh, the lymphatic system, it includes, you've got lymph nodes and, uh, the vessels, and I think that also includes your spleen. Yeah. Okay. If you're curious about the lymphatic system, you can look it up, but that's just me going off my memory of the immune system. And there are actually three different groups of tonsils. I thought, oh, you've got two tonsils in the back of your throat. No, you've got more than that. So I, I, I just said that there's three groups of tonsils. Yes. You've got uh, pharyngeal tonsils, which are located up in your uh, nasal cavity. So these are more up in your nose. You've got palatine tonsils, which are located in the back of your throat. And you've got lingual tonsils, which are located um, on, on the back of your tongue, pretty much. And tonsils uh, are clumps of cells that, um, as I mentioned, are in your, the back of your throat, the back of your tongue, and the nasal cavity, and these glumps of cells lay under mucous membranes in your mouth and your nose, and mucous membranes, um, I think I mentioned them last week, but if you didn't listen to last week's episode, Uh mucous membranes are used in your body, they're secreted, and they catch, um, airborne particles that come in through your mouth and nose. And I mentioned that these tonsils lay underneath these mucous membranes. And what's important about tonsils is I already mentioned they're part of the lymphatic system. Now, what makes them an important player in the lymphatic system is tonsils actually contain immune cells. And why tonsils contain immune cells is because of their location. I mentioned their... Located in your mouth and nose. So they contain these immune cells to help fight off any pathogens that might enter through your mouth and nose. Now, tonsils on their own have a great role to play. Great, great role. But they can prove an issue. And there's a few different reasons as to as to, to how and as to why they can prove an issue and why some people later get their tonsils removed. So one reason why tonsils can prove a bit problematic is if uh, number one, if tonsils get inflamed. So if tonsils get inflamed enough that they swell, they uh, can interfere with your breathing. Now this is this mainly applies to pharyngeal tonsils, which I mentioned are located in your nasal cavity. Now if these tonsils get inflamed, they can interfere with your breathing, and the issue with this is. If you go to sleep and you have inflamed tonsils, this can give you, um, I think it's called sleep apnea. You guys might have heard of it, maybe. Uh, It causes issues when you're sleeping. You can't get enough air into your lungs, blah, blah, blah. And this is one of the reasons why your tonsils can be removed if they swell and you can't breathe. And specifically, the swelling of tonsils is called tonsillitis. So if you want to look at that later... It's called tonsillitis. Cool stuff. Well, I don't want to get it, but cool stuff anyways. Uh, Now, another reason why you could have your tonsils removed is... um, If you repeatedly get numerous bacterial or viral infections. Specifically in your tonsils. And... Excuse me. (laughs) Excuse me. Uh, And this happens that... um, If you have numerous bacterial or viral infections, so this is when they happen five to seven times a year. And this um, occurrence of getting your tonsils removed most generally happens between the ages of four to seven. It's really uncommon to get your tonsils out after about um, age 15. Um, But if any of these kinds of situations, either... Uh, inflammation or infection they get bad enough people will have their tonsils removed and this procedure is called a tonsillectomy and i just saw on facebook the other day one of my friends who i knew in elementary schools she's now she's i think a few years older than me but she just got her tonsils out and i saw that and i'm like whoa it's fate i just did an episode on tonsils as one of my topics, and my friend gets her tonsils out in the same span of a few days. That's pretty crazy. I saw that and I was like, "Whoa, crazy!" And she's not, she's not young. She's my age. That's crazy. Uh, I haven't had my tonsils removed, so I don't know what it feels like. But the closest thing I can relate to, I guess, is I got my wisdom teeth out. Uh, what's it now? A little over a year ago. Crazy. It was pre-COVID. But yeah, I mean, that's the closest I can relate. But again, if any of you got your tonsils out, I'd, I'd like to hear about it, just just how it works, you know, because I'm like, I've read about how it works, but just to know how it feels, you know, because that's the, that's the most worrying part for me about surgeries is how they feel. Anyways, the good thing about a tonsillectomy, which is when you get your tonsils removed, is they don't actually take that long. So the literature I read said that a tonsillectomy takes about 20 to 30 minutes. Now, I know this might vary on a case-by-case basis, but, I mean, that's still good to hear that they don't take too, too long. And these tonsillectomies, um, they, uh, they happen, and then you're left with having the tonsils completely removed. So the tonsils that might have been causing you issues they go in surgically, knock you out, and they remove them. And right now, annually, at least in the U.S., I couldn't really find good data on worldwide tonsillectomy um, occurrences, but in the U.S., about half a million of these occur each year. And the articles I were reading uh, were saying that tonsillectomies have been on the decrease. Uh, my One of my, my older relatives, she said That uh, my my grandmother and my my grandmother's siblings, they got their tonsils out, but she didn't. And now I'm hearing that it's only really like young kids, but it used to be a really common procedure that, like you know, every young kid got their tonsils out, and then you could eat ice cream afterwards because that's what you do. That's what you can eat afterwards. But I still thought that was pretty interesting to see that the rates of these uh, tonsillectomies are going down. Now, there has been a little bit of concern that I saw that was mentioned in my literature that I was reading about if you get your tonsils out, you're more susceptible to infection. But I read and saw that this really isn't the case as much because your body can adapt and your body has a lot of different immune defenses and this is all really good to know that if you do end up getting your tonsils out, you'll be okay. I mean, follow the whole recovery, uh, rehabilitation stuff, but I mean, if you get them out, you're fine. It's, that's good to hear. It's good to know. Now, I want to talk about this study, which I mentioned briefly before I started discussing tonsils and tonsillectomies. And this study was, it's a little bit, a tad bit dated, but not that much. It was actually published um, a year and a day ago from today. So back on February 27th, 2020. So all pre COVID, which makes me so sad, but really interesting study. I mentioned, uh, it at the beginning and it involved researchers from, uh, just from LMU, uh, in Munich and, What made this study so interesting is that these researchers focused on discarded tonsils. Now, you've got half a million tonsillectomies occurring each year in the US. That's a lot of surgeries, and tonsils, after they're removed, are treated as surgical waste. I know that was the case when they removed my wisdom teeth, they let me see them, and then they discarded them. But that's the same case with tonsils, they're treated as surgical waste. And what these um, LMU uh, Munich researchers did is that they were able to take some of these discarded tonsils while they were still fresh to study the, the immune cells that they contain. Because I mentioned tonsils contain immune cells. These researchers, these researchers were like, oh, look, it's a free source of immune cells. We're just going to borrow these tonsils and use them in our study. I'm like, okay that's cool (laughs) and that's exactly what they did uh so these researchers took these tonsils as fresh as they could to study the immune cells within them and their immune response they specifically used uh, pharyngeal tonsils which i mentioned are located up in your nasal cavity and pharyngeal tonsils are a good use um, of immune cells because they fight incoming pathogens when they're intact in your body. So since pharyngeal tonsils fight um, pathogens that come into your body, they have a lot of immune cells, and they're already kind of active because they're used to fight off pathogens, which is good, which is great. It's great. And specifically in this study, these researchers looked at two different types of immune cells. They looked at a type of immune cells a type of immune cell called uh, the helper T cells and they looked at another type of immune cell called helper B cells and both of these types of cells are used in the recognition of pathogens and uh, the development of antibodies because that's how your immune system works. It recognizes oh we have something that is not self and we will go and attack it. And for pathogens, your body recognizes, oh, I have a pathogen in me, and then it works to develop an antibody to it. So the antibody is later used within your immune system to alert your immune cells, hey, we have an invader, we have to kill them. And that's why vaccines are so effective, is because they're used to get your body to develop antibodies Before you get an infection, so when you get an infection, your body's response to that um, foreign pathogen is quicker than if you hadn't have had the vaccine. But there can be some issues with these um, helper T-cells and B-cells. If something within their span of actions goes wrong, this can lead to development of allergies and potentially autoimmune reactions. And just quickly, autoimmune reactions are when your body attacks your own cells because it thinks they're a uh, pathogen or an invader. And if you're curious about allergy development or autoimmune reactions or diseases, you can look into them more because there are plenty, plenty of things to look at in this specific realm. And so these researchers studied these specific uh Methods that what happened in these tonsil immune cells and they developed a uh, Series of steps To keep these immune cells alive in culture So keeping cells alive in culture means that you take cells from their original state. So tell you say you take some skin cells That are alive, of course not not dead skin cells You take some live skin cells, right and growing them in culture means that you grow them in a petri dish So this is growing them uh, not within a living system. You're just growing them on a Petri dish, and that's how it goes. So these, these researchers developed a method to grow these pharyngeal immune cells on a Petri dish. And because they were able to develop this, this has allowed them to get a better look at various immune responses from these cells And they also studied the impacts and effects of various drugs. Some of the drugs that they tried, for instance, were ones that have been used to try and combat autoimmune diseases, such as drugs used for Crohn's disease and arthritis and many others, which is great. And... This is awesome because these researchers are like, oh, look, we have these tonsil cells. We're going to use them to test drugs on, which is exactly what they did. And along with drug testing, these researchers also uh, use these immune cells to look at and study the immune response and how the immune response works. And all this work is great. It's really promising. It's really inspiring because it could be the future of... uh, Cell, cell work and cell testing That's more Ethically sound Because currently you, We have at least From what I know of in medical research You've got Animal models Which is a whole other ethical thing And you've got Very limited chances To use human cells in studies Because that's, that's the goal In medical research Is We only use animal models generally, I mean, to to get uh, data to be as close to representing human conditions as we can. So, by these researchers using discarded human tonsils and human immune cells, that's a great way of sourcing cells, because that way you don't have to uh, use as many animal models or anything it's it's great and and i i hope there's some more work going on in this area in general because it's it's great to hear that you've got progress with tonsils like now where's the next source of human cells going to come from i don't know it's all really promising it's it's great and now i learned that discarded tonsils might actually have a use what what's next will people use um scraps from uh, organ donation to grow and use those cells will they um, use uh, teeth that are removed in dental surgery to study the effects of different things on teeth in that kind of research who knows it's it's all really promising and I and I hope that that we could maybe get to some of those points in the future that'd be great be great to just Transition off of human and animal uh, Human cell and animal model testing To just transfer onto human cells But I mean I know we're a long ways off from that But it's still a really promising area of work Uh, Yeah so I hope you guys have had a good weekend so far Uh, I know I have My sister uh, she just left today to go back to school She didn't have COVID by the way She did not have COVID, which is great, but I got to hang out with her for a week, and she had been given a week off of school because there had been some other kids at her school that had gotten COVID. She didn't, but she had a week off of school, basically, and it was great. I mean, I still had to do lectures and stuff, but I got to hang out with her for a week, and it was great. So I hope you guys had a good weekend, have had a good Sunday. If you're listening right now. I hope you've enjoyed the show. Uh, I keep checking every now and then. My listener count, and the most I think it's gotten to is like seven. And I'm like, yay, I have seven people. But then I have to remember, oh yeah, my broadcast slot is at 1 a.m. UK time, which is super late. So, I mean, that kind of makes sense. But hey, for those of you who are in the UK right now who are listening to me at almost two in the morning... Good for you. Good for you. I really appreciate that you spend your time listening to my show. It, it, it really, I mean, that's why I started it, is to get people to learn about this kind of stuff. It's great. But I hope you guys have enjoyed so far and have enjoyed all these cool studies going on at LMU in Munich. It's pretty cool. I think it's great. And I'll see you all next week for another episode of The Living World. Hope you guys have a good rest of your weekend.